Our monthly discussions about the Korean report have got a legion of fans that are growing more and more. And, uh, well, after the last month, who better than guiding us through the insanity that seems to have grabbed hold of investment markets around the world than Korean's author of the report, co-founder of the company, David Bacher. David, I actually wanted to chat to you today about World Cup cricket, given your family's very strong cricketing background, uh, but there's so much to go on the markets. Before we start on the markets, though, uh, can can we win? Can the Proteas uh, win the World Cup? I'd like to think so. I mean, we do have the players to, to go far. Um, I would say we certainly aren't favourites for a reason. Uh, the perennial lack of all-rounders in the team, I think, could could come back to haunt us. Uh, by no means probably the family expert in this matter, but uh, from a personal view, um, I, I think probably our lack of depth in, in, in all-rounders in a game that has become very much dependent on going hard, going fast, scoring quick and having depth at the end is probably could be our Achilles heel. Thanks for giving us that. I won't put any money. In fact, I don't bet uh, at all anymore. I haven't done for many years. But if I was a betting man, after hearing that, mm-hmm. all right, David, uh, the markets in September were just overall. What is your big takeaway? Well, it was indeed a very tough uh, month for investors as stock markets around the world slumped. Global equities ended down approximately 4% and global bonds didn't do much better. So, you know, it was difficult for most asset classes and the primary culprits um, for these poor returns was no doubt the significant rising bond yields. Oil uh, rose very quickly and on top of that, you had a slew of global central bank meetings which generally underlined the prospects of higher interest rates for, for longer. So, against that backdrop, uh, asset m- asset classes were under pressure. Well, let's just look at those bond yields um, and maybe you can give us a little bit more detail on that. In the United States, up by 0.5%. That doesn't sound much, but when you're talking 20 or 10 or 20-year investments, it is a lot. It certainly is, and it was a very steep rise in the context of history and how far it's come from. So, you know, you must remember that the U.S. tenure is widely considered as the risk-free rate, the rate which all asset classes are, are, are valued. So if you look at equities, you know, you use the risk-free rate as your discount rate of, of valuing shares. Um, and how do you value shares? You take all this future cash flows and you discount it to today's present value. So when the risk-free rate moves, it has a material impact on, on all asset classes, not just equities, also bonds. Um, and other asset classes. So a lot of uh, investment professionals out there, I think, will, would have been going back to the drawing board and trying to work out what it means for, for their positions. And the impact on oil prices, why would that have been uh, had this knock-on effect? Well, I think you know, oil is so interconnected with the economy. You could argue maybe less so than five or ten years ago with, with the move to to cleaner energy, but you know that still doesn't mean that it's not materially 
influence, uh, influential factor. And there's two reasons why it's such an important factor. Firstly, you know, it's an inflationary effect. Uh, what you'll find likely is increasing global petrol prices, trans- transportation uh, costs, um, and, and that you know has not only inflationary pressures but also impacts the consumer. So there will be a knock-on consequence for consumer spending, and that's uh, not good for for you know companies that you know are, are chasing in a tough environment every man's uh, uh, leftovers. Dollars and rands, and the news coming out of the Federal Reserve from Jay Powell seemed to give the market a bit of a jolt as well. Correct. It was a very hawkish uh, statement, and you know many people were starting to think that, uh, and including myself. And I think on previous yeah on this show, I said, "Are we near the top of, of interest rate cycle?" I think we still are, but I think it's going to take after what he said. It longer it's going to take longer to for it to start start coming down. So, uh, you know, rising interest rates uh, is not a good backdrop for for a global economy and also for for asset classes. Now, I guess if you have a look back through history, when interest rates start falling, is when you should be really filling up on shares because equities do well in falling interest rate cycles. Of course, the opposite also occurs. And the consequence of this was very interesting for the year as a whole. I like the way that you've contrasted what's gone on in China, down 4.4%, with what's happened in the United States uh, exponential companies or FANGs, which are up by more than 60%. Correct. And the graph that you're showing, and we, we labeled it yeah, Chinese dragon floors and US tech souls. So the Chinese dragon, there's a ETF out there that is called the Golden Dragon China Index, uh, which which uh, tracks large Chinese shares and also some mid-caps, also quite IT-focused, uh, probably a bit more diversified than the FANG. But, you know, that is negative minus four. And then you look at the FANG, the big, you know, FANG plus index, the Magnificent Seven, so to speak, up 63% year to date. So, you know, without that uh, that exposure, and thankfully for a lot of investors, it is quite a large part of most indexes and people's savings. It's been a very tough environment. Emerging markets have been under pressure. Uh, broad equity markets have been under pressure. In fact, the Russell 2000, which is, you know, a more broader a mid and small cap representation of the market, is actually negative for, for the month, despite the S&P being significantly positive, largely due to those seven shares. These difficult times that we're seeing with high interest rates, is that a little bit like COVID perhaps, which accelerated the already established trends? Um, When we have a look at what happened in the online world, for instance, webinars suddenly came to the fore and so on. There were lots of uh, consequences. Is this perhaps something similar that's going on in investment markets? It's tough times, so people are getting more focused on what they can see are going to be the winners of the future? I think what Afcorian concerns us is when you have interest rates going so quickly, so fast, uh, escalating, is that it invariably leads to a surprise. A, a, you know, when a company is you know, potentially highly leveraged um, and having a much higher cost base or the consumer's under pressure, when you have interest rates rising so quickly, the probability of there being a surprise coming from left field or some kind of danger 
uh, is escalated. And I think what the, this environment you know highlights to us is maybe you know be a little bit more cautious going forward, knowing that um, you don't know exactly where the surprise can, comes from. I mean, if you go back to March earlier this year, you saw the three U, regional banks in in the U.S. under pressure and and really folding because of sharp increase in interest rates. Now you're having it again. What's next to fall? We don't really know, but it's potentially not the time to take on too much risk. Okay. Moving on to our fantasy fund manager uh, competition. Interesting to see that Grant Morris is topping the league, and this is five months in. We've only got a month to go, and with only 14%. That's got to tell you. Out of the thousands of people who are playing this game, the best of them is, has only got 14%. That tells you what a tough market the South African market's been over the past few months. Correct. And the broad index is down in this game. The equally weighted 60 shares is down about 3.5%. So uh, hats off to Grant. And it's nice that Grant is actually uh, leading. He is a senior portfolio manager at Lucas Gray, uh, manages uh, some of uh, Corinne's clients' assets. Um, so it's nice to know that people who we have entrusted our clients' assets with is you know implementing similar views in his fantasy portfolio as he's doing for our clients and, and doing really, really well. So what I also did, uh, I'm lying about 700 of the 4,500 participants. So that's that's not bad. Uh, but I had a look at my portfolio head-to-head with grants because, you know, of course, you have a look at the best in the world, in, 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 the, uh, in class. And I thought that the appointment of Sean Summers at Pick and Pay was going to see that share skyrocketing. Of course, it went down 15%. Come on, David. I mean, these these moves, how does one work it out the way that the market's going to interpret uh, news events? Funny, because um, I'm also coming about 700. So I think I'm going to have a little competition with you head to head here. I think it's going to be a close finish between the two of us. And I've also got Pick and Pay hoping for a bounce. So... I've had a horrible week as well. Uh, to answer your question directly, you know, pick and pay, in addition to the announcement that Sean's coming back, also signaled worse than expected uh, results. And I think that overshadowed uh, his appointment. I thought it had more to do with, you know, the trading uh, rhetoric around uh, what to expect for the future. So hence, yesterday, I think the share fell by 12% uh, uh, and not doing our fantasy performance any good. No, it isn't, is it? But, uh, well, let's hope for the bounce. It is, we're literally coming to the end of, of this. It's We're in the, the final straight now. Uh, from your perspective, the whole fantasy fund manager, have, have you been uh, happy with it being given that it was our first, uh, and I say our because we've also been intimately involved as well, our first crack at this? You know, I, I think it's been amazing. It's uh, four and a half thousand people in your first year playing uh you know, I think we've had uh, great partners behind us. Uh, we've had a lot of uh, uh, discussions with business, and thankfully, uh, you saw and your your business saw the need for you know educating people. And the backdrop of the fantasy fund manager has a lot of educational elements to it. And uh, you know, it's very rare that I don't go into a meeting where I have someone talking about the fantasy fund manager and what a good idea it was, and the internal competition so you know we're very happy with the result i think we'll potentially take it to the next level next year but a great start and i i, I think you know also 
what really was pleasing was how stable the system is. There's always a risk uh, developing something that is a bit different um, and with a lot of moving parts, but you know, the interface has been well received and um, there's been actually no technology glitches on the system, which uh, was probably the one thing that maybe kept me up at night. It's also interesting uh, having a look at the way the Superbrew guys work on the sports fantasy um, games. And I'm sure there's a heck of a lot of improvement that we can bring in from the content side as well. Let's, uh, as we always do, have a look at the individual performances over the past year uh, on general equity. Interesting to see that uh, the Signia funds are still up there quite well. But generally speaking, it's it's kind of it's it's more of the boutiques that appear certainly over the one year uh, category to be outperforming the bigger companies. Is this to be expected? I think to some extent it is to be expected. I mean, we have some very good large houses in South Africa, but in an environment where it hasn't been a one way bet, where large caps haven't haven't been you know significantly outperforming other segments of the market. Managers that can have more flexibility, less assets under management, move their portfolios uh, a bit more um, and invest in, in shares that that if you're a bigger house, you probably couldn't get a big holding on, uh, I think is a competitive advantage in South Africa. And South Africa uh, asset management industry has been dominated by the bigger houses. It's nice to see uh, the performance of boutiques doing so well. I think it leads to a healthier, more competitive uh, asset management industry. Fairtree keeps popping up. Who are these guys? Fairtree is probably uh, the most successful asset management firm over the last 10 years. If I look from where they are now in terms of asset manage, assets under management to where they were 10 years ago, um, it's a collection of different investment professionals uh, that have come together under one uh, brand or banner. Um, so if, you know, Fairtree provide a, a home for compliance, for operations, et cetera, and a broad investment research house. Um, but they, they have run very different silos. And a lot of those silos have actually been very successful. The majority of the assets under management is actually in the equity fund, which has grown to you know, a significant uh, fund, so you can see, as I think it's the fourth largest fund in the category with assets of twenty billion rands, um, and they performed really well. So over a ten-year period, uh, they really got, I think, predominantly the timing of the sector calls right, uh, going from financials into resources and and vice versa, and that has led to you know competitive performance, uh, which ultimately leads into to assets under management. Well done to Fairtree for that idea in the first place. And uh, I suppose it's a boutique of boutiques, if you put it that way. Correct. Uh, but you know, as things develop, uh, you know, when you're managing, uh, I'm not quite sure what the number is, but I think it's probably about 80 billion rands of assets under management. The boutique of uh, yesterday might not be the boutique of today or tomorrow. So, you know, the what we're trying to do at Corin is actually try and look also for not only the good managers now, but who are going to be the next fair trees in the next five years and 10 years, as was the case with the likes of Investec, then Coronation, and previously Alan Gray. 
and PSG, which is still performing incredibly well. On the high equity side, uh, yeah, there really is a, a dominance on the best performing funds with the with the boutiques that are coming through here. I suppose that speaks to what you said a moment ago. Correct. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's not surprising if you look at the list of the winners there or the, the best performing funds, those are the funds that generally have been exposed uh, to those magnificent seven, those big uh, heavyweight shares in, in the NASDAQ and S&P. Um, if you weren't there uh, and you weren't... Uh, uh, if you you were more defensively positioned, uh, you know you would have struggled. It is interesting to see best performer thirty six percent return over the past year average for the sector thirteen percent worst performer four percent. So mm, even if your financial manager or your uh, financial advisor has put you into the very worst fund um, in the equ- in a high equity side, you would still be in front, which is not such a bad thing. David, we always close off with the inflows and the outflows. Now, this is a month behind, not surprisingly. Uh, I, I know you guys pride yourselves on getting the figures out very quickly, and you can do that when it's commoditized data. But this information, is it more difficult to get your hands on? Correct. It's just the way the industry reports. So the performance numbers are reported daily. The actual flow numbers is always a month in, in arrears. Um, so, you know, you can only uh, reflect the data that is present. So there's always a, a one-month lag with this data. I'm not quite sure what the reason is. Maybe the industry is, uh, uh, yeah, just uh, finds that a bit proprietary and don't release it straight away. But, uh, you know, the data comes second business day every month to what is available. Unfortunately, inflows isn't available at time of reporting. So by far the biggest inflows in the past year went to MNGSA Equity Fund. Tell us a bit about this one. So what MNG do, uh, uh, it's hard for me to speak on their behalf, but what I suspect is um, they are obviously part of the global um, franchise. um, And when they have asset allocation decisions, internationally and they want to invest in equities, they'll invest in the, the SA equity bucket and they'll do it through predominantly uh, this vehicle. So the fact that they have gained a lot of assets, I suspect, hasn't got to do with retail investors. I think it's got to do with asset allocation decisions and institutional decisions, which is starting to increase their weighting to South Africa. So you know, probably hasn't worked of late, uh, certainly last two or four months. But it's nice to see that they, you know, look at the one one month number. That's a significant inflow. I suspect they're actually gearing themselves up for a South African rebound. Four billion rand invested. There. Who's MNG? MNG is a big insurance global insurance company. So previously it was a Prudential. Um, so you would have seen the average, hopefully, in the, uh, around in terms of sporting events. Prudential was a big asset manager in South Africa. It was then rebranded, to my knowledge, Prudential MNG because MNG bought a stake in that business. And then I think about a year ago, they took a controlling stake. They went over the the 50% hurdle and they just dropped the Prudential name. So for your listeners out there, the old Prudential uh, brand has been rebranded MNG and that's the fund that you're seeing, the equity only fund. 
I hope I'm not uh, going to trick you with this one, but the Fussell CI Growth Fund, that's a completely new name to me, and yet on high equity, 2 billion rand inflow in the past month and 2 billion for the year to date makes it the biggest inflow, even bigger than Discovery and Alan Gray. What gives there? Uh, to be honest, I'm not quite sure. It's a, it's a new name to me as well. Um, the clues that I'm looking for uh, is uh, it's a, a CR fund. So the Manco is CR. And generally, CR uh, uh, is a collection of financial advisors' portfolios. So what could potentially have happened is this is a financial advisor who's taken its client's assets, uh, structured a collective investment scheme, and put all his assets uh, into the portfolio, but that is just uh, a, a, a hunch, maybe a strong hunch, but I, I, honestly, I don't know the all the facts there. One of the financial advisor names that pops up is Bob Fussell, so it sounds like you're on the money there. Let's close off with outflows, David. Yeah, I think uh, it's not surprising that the bigger outflows are from the bigger asset managers uh, when you have a South African industry that uh, saving industry that's been a bit under pressure, where there's been a lot of assets that have moved from from South African domicile to offshore domicile, you know that money generally comes from the bigger houses. So you'll see the larger outflows uh, being from those houses. So not too surprising, um, but I think maybe there is a bit of an element now that uh, you know financial advisors and retail investors are starting to get a little bit more comfortable with boutique investment houses. Um, so, you know, hopefully that's also uh, an influence. And as I said earlier, good for the industry. We keep seeing old mutual investors fund, the once dominant unit trust in the country. In fact, old mutual itself was once dominant in the financial services space. Uh, keeping declining, continuing to fall, is this just a, a reflection of old mutual as a whole losing its former glory? Um, look, I don't think old mutual will ever dominate the asset management industry as it did in the eighties and the, you know the early nineties, and it was really old mutual and Sunlam. I think those times have definitely changed, and that's been good for the industry because those powerful houses heeded the talent of the likes of. Alan Gray, Coronation, Investec, and that was the breeding ground of the asset management industry. Um, but I do think that Old Mutual as a house has, you know, also changed its business model. It's, you know, bought into some boutiques a while ago. Um, so, um, you know, managing a lot of life assets and company uh, assets under management, they've uh, rather gone in terms of silos and, and backed uh, other investment houses to partner with. Um, so I think it's not just the fact that you know old mutual is losing assets. I think we're they're just trying to uh, diversify the assets and also back other jockeys. Fascinating insights on not just the markets themselves, but the whole financial services or savings industry from David Bacher, who's with Corian, and I'm Alec Hogg from Biznews.com. <laughs>